0: Section 23 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kay Hand. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Part 3. Goethe's ballads have an undying popularity. They have been translated, and most of them are familiar to English readers. In the elegies written after his return from Italy, The author figures as a classic poet inspired by the Latin muse. The choices of these elegies, the Alexis and Dora, is not so much an imitation of the ancients as it is the manifestation of a side of the poet's nature which he had in common with the ancients. He wrote as a Greek or Roman might write because he felt his subject as a Greek or Roman might feel it. Hermann und Dorothea, which Schiller pronounced the acme not only of Goethean but of all modern art, was written professedly as an attempt in the Homeric style, motivated by Wolff's Proglomania and Voss's Luis. It is Homeric only in its circumstantiality, in the repetition of the same epithets applied to the same persons, and in the Greek realism of Goethe's nature. The theme is very un-Homeric. It is thoroughly modern and German. Germans themselves I present, to the humbler dwelling I lead you, where with nature as guide man is naturally still. This exquisite poem has been translated into English hexameters with great fidelity by Miss Ellen Frothingham. Iphigenie of Taris handles a Greek theme, exhibits Greek characters, and was hailed on its first appearance as a genuine echo of the Greek drama. Mr. Lewes denies it to that character, and certainly it is not Greek but Christian in sentiment. It differs from the extant drama of Euripides, who treats the same subject in the Christian feeling which determines its denouement. A large portion of Goethe's productions have taken the dramatic form, yet he cannot be said, theatrically speaking, to have been, like Schiller, a successful dramatist. His plays, with the exception of Egmont and the first part of Faust, have not commanded the stage. They form no part, I believe, of the stock of any German theater. The characterizations are striking, but the positions are not dramatic. Single scenes in some of them are exceptions, like in Egmont, where Clara endeavors to rouse her fellow citizens to the rescue of the Count, while Brackenberg seeks to restrain her, and several of the scenes in the first part of Faust. But on the whole, the interest of Goethe's dramas is psychological rather than scenic. Especially is this the case with Tasso, one of the author's noblest works, where the characters are not so much actors as metaphysical portraitures. Schiller, in his plays, always had the stage in view. Goethe, on the contrary, wrote for readers, or cultivated reflective hearers, not spectators. When I say, then, that Goethe, compared with Schiller, failed of dramatic success, I mean that his talent did not lie in the line of plays adapted to the stage as it is. Or if the talent was not wanting, his taste did not incline to such performance. He was no playwright. But there is another and higher sense of the word dramatic where Goethe is supreme the sense in which Dante's great poem is called a commedia, a play. There is a drama whose scope is beyond the compass of any earthly stage, a drama not for theatre-goers, to be seen on the boards, but for intellectual contemplation of men and angels. Such a drama is Faust, of which I shall speak hereafter. Of Goethe's prose works, I mean works of prose fiction, the most considerable are two philosophical novels, Wilhelm Meister and The Elective Affinities. In the first of these, the various and complex motives which have shaped the composition may be comprehended in the one word, education, the education of life for the business of life. The main thread of the narrative traces through a labyrinth of loosely connected scenes and events, the growth of the hero's character, a progressive training by various influence, passional, intellectual, social, moral, and religious. These are represented by the personnel of the story. In accordance with this design, the hero himself, if so he may be called, has no pronounced traits, is more negative than positive, but is brought into contact with many very positive characters. His life is the stage on which these characters perform. A ground is thus provided for the numerous portraits of which the author's large experience furnished the originals, and for lessons of practical wisdom derived from his close observation of men and things and his lifelong reflection thereon. Wilhelm Meister, if not the most artistic, is the most instructive, and in that view, next to Faust, the most important of Goethe's work. In it, he has embodied his philosophy of life, a philosophy far enough removed from the Epicurean views which ignorance has ascribed to him, a philosophy which is best described by the term ascetic. Its keynote is renunciation. With renunciation begins the true life, was the author's favorite maxim. And the second part of Wilhelm Meister, the Wanderjar, bears the collateral title Die Enstengenden, that is, the renouncing or the self-denying. The characters that figure in this second part, most of whom have had their training in the first, form a society whose principle of union is self-renunciation and a life of beneficent activity. The most fascinating character in Wilhelm meister, the wonder and delight of the reader, is Mignon, a child-woman, a pure creation of Goethe's genius without a prototype in literature. Readers of Scott will remember Fenella, the elfish maiden in Peveril of the Peak. Scott says in his preface to that novel, the character of Fenella, which from its peculiarity made a favorable impression on the public, was far from being original. The fine sketch of Mignon in Wilhelm meister's L'air-Jar, a celebrated work from the pen of Goethe, gave the idea of such a being, but the copy will be found to be greatly different from my great prototype, nor can I be accused of barring anything save the general idea. As I remember Finella, the resemblance to Mignon is merely superficial. A certain weirdness is all they have in common. The intensity of the inner life, the unspeakable longing, the cry of the unsatisfied heart, the devout aspiration, the presentiment of the heavenly life which characterize Mignon are peculiar to her, they constitute her individuality. Wilhelm has found her a kidnapped child attached to a strolling circus company, and has rescued her from the cruel hands of the manager. Thenceforth she clings to him with a passionate devotion, in which gratitude for her deliverance, filial affection, and the love of a maiden for her hero are strangely blended. Afflicted with a disease of the heart, she is subject to terrible convulsions which increase the tenderness of her protector for the doomed child. After one of these attacks, in which she had been suffering frightful pain, we read, He held her fast. She wept, and no tongue can express the force of those tears. Her long hair had become unfastened and hung loose over her shoulders. Her whole being seemed to be melting away. At last she raised herself up. A mild cheerfulness gleamed from her face. My father, she cried, you will not leave me. You will be my father. I will be your child. Softly before the door a harp began to sound. The old harper was bringing his heartiest songs as an evening sacrifice to his friends. Then bursts on the reader that world-famed song in which the soul of Mignon, with its unconquerable yearnings, is forever embalmed. Kens du das land? Knowest thou the land that bears the citron's bloom? The golden orange glows mid verdant gloom. A gentle wind from heaven's deep azure blows. The myrtle low and high the laurel grows. Knowest thou the land? O oh there, oh there, would I with thee, my best beloved, repair. The elective affinities has been strangely misinterpreted as having an immoral tendency, as encouraging conjugal infidelity and approving free love. That anyone who has read the work with attention to the end could so misjudge it seems incredible. Precisely the reverse of this, the aim is to enforce the sanctity of the nuptial bond by showing the tragic consequences resulting from its violation, though only in thought and feeling. Here, a word concerning one merit of Goethe which seems to me not to have been sufficiently appreciated by even his admirers, his loving skill in the delineation of female character, the commanding place he assigns to women in his writings, his full recognitions of the importance of feminine influence in human destiny. The prophetic utterance, which forms the conclusion of Faust, the ever womanly draws us on, is the summing up of Goethe's own experience of life. Few men ever had such wide opportunities of acquaintance with women. If, on the one hand, his loves had revealed to him the passional side of feminine nature, he had enjoyed, on the other, the friendship of some of the purest and noblest of womankind. Conspicuous among these are Fräulein von Klettenberg and the Duchess Louise, whom no one, says Louise, ever speaks of but in terms of veneration. No poet but Shakespeare, and scarcely Shakespeare, has set before the world so rich a gallery of female portraits. They range from the lowest to the highest, from the wanton to the saint. They are drawn in firm lines and limbed in imperishable colors, each bearing the stamp of her own individuality and each confessing a master's hand. These may be considered as representing different phases of the poet's experience, different stadia in his view of life. The ever womanly draws us on so Goethe, of all men most susceptible of feminine influence, was led by it from weakness to strength, from dissipation to concentration, from doubt to clearness, from tumult to repose, from the earthly to the heavenly. Faust Goethe appears to have derived his knowledge of the Faust legend partly from the work of Widmann, published in 1599, partly from another more modern in its form, which appeared in 1728, and partly from the puppet plays exhibited in frankfurt and other cities of germany of which that legend was then a favorite theme he was not the only writer of that day who made use of it some thirty of his contemporaries had produced their fausts during the interval which elapsed between the inception and publication of his great work oblivion overtook them all with the exception of lessings of which a few fragments are left the manuscript of the complete work was unaccountably lost on its way to the publisher between dresden and leipzig the composition of Faust as we learn from Goethe's biography proceeded spasmodically with many and long interruptions between the inception and the conclusion projected in 1769 at the age of 20 it was not completed till the year 1831 at the age of 82 but the effect of the long arrest which after Goethe's removal to Weimar delayed the completion of the Faust is most apparent in the wide gulf which separates as to character and style, the second part from the first. So great indeed is the distance between the two that without external historical proofs for identity, it would seem from internal evidence altogether improbable, in spite of the slender thread of the fable which connects them, that both poems were the work of one and the same author. And really, the author was not the same. The change which had come over Goethe on his return from Italy had gone down to the very springs of his intellectual life the fervour and the rush the sparkle and foam of his early productions had been replaced by the stately calm and the luminous breadth of view that is born of experience the torrent of the mountains had become the river of the plain romantic impetuosity had changed to classic repose he could still by occasional efforts of the will cast himself back into the old moods resume the old thread and so complete the first faust But we may confidently assert that he could not, after the age of 40, have originated the poem any more than before his Italian tour he could have written the second Faust, purporting to be a continuation of the first. The difference in spirit and style is enormous. As to the question, which of the two is the greater production, it is like asking which is the greater, Dante's Commedia or Shakespeare's Macbeth. They are incommensurable. As to which is the more generally interesting, no question can arise. There are thousands who enjoy and admire the first part to one who even reads the second. The interest of the former is poetic and thoroughly human. The interest of the other is partly poetic, but mostly philosophic and scientific. The symbolical character of Faust is assumed by all the critics, and in part confessed by the author himself. Besides the general symbolism pervading and motivating the whole, a symbolism of human destiny, and here and there a shadowing forth of the poet's private experience, There are special allusions, local, personal, enigmatic conceits, which have furnished topics of the learned discussion and taxed the ingenuity of numerous commentators. We need not trouble ourselves with these subtleties, but little exegesis is needed for a right comprehension of the true and substantial import of the work. The key to the plot is given in the prologue in Heaven. The devil, in the character of Mephistopheles, asks permission to tempt Faust. He boasts his ability to get entire possession of his soul and drag him down to hell. The Lord grants the permission and prophesies the failure of the attempt. Be it allowed, Draw this spirit from its source if you can lay hold of him. Bear him with you on your downward path and stand ashamed when you are forced to confess that a good man in his dark strivings has a consciousness of the right way. Here we have a hint of the author's design. He does not intend that the devil shall succeed. He does not mean to adopt the conclusion of the legend and send Faust to hell he had the penetration to see and he meant to show that the notion implied in the old popular superstition of selling one's soul to the devil the notion that evil can obtain the entire and final possession of the soul is a fallacy that the soul is not man's to dispose of and cannot be so traded away we are the souls not the soul ours evil is self-limited the good in man must finally prevail so long as he strives he is not lost heaven will come to the aid of his better nature this is the doctrine, the philosophy of Faust. In the first part, stung by disappointment in his search of knowledge, by failure to lay hold of the superhuman, and urged on by his baser propensities personified in Mephistopheles, Faust abandons himself to sensual pleasure, seduces innocence, burdens his soul with heavy guilt, and seems to be entirely given over to evil. This part ends with Mephistopheles's imperious call, Herr zu mir, as if secure of his victim, before the appearance of the second part the reader was at liberty to accept that conclusion but in the second part faust gradually wakes from the intoxication of passion outgrows the dominion of appetite plans great and useful works whereby mephistopheles loses more and more his hold of him and after his death is baffled in his attempt to appropriate faust's immortal part to which the heavenly powers assert their right The character of Margaret is unique. Its duplicate is not to be found in all the picture galleries of fiction. Shakespeare, in the wide range of his feminine personnel, has no portrait like this. A girl of low birth and vulgar circumstance, imbued with the ideas and habits of her class, speaking the language of that class, from which she never for a moment deviates into finer phrase, takes on, through the magic handling of the poet, an ideal beauty. Externally common and prosaic in all her ways, she is yet thoroughly poetic, transfigured in our conception by her perfect love to that love unreasoning unsuspecting to the excess of that which is in itself no fault but beautiful and good her fall and ruin are due her story is the tragedy of her sex in all time as schlegel said of the prometheus bound it is not a single tragedy but tragedy itself the first part ends with the prison scene where poor margaret escaping by death ascends to heaven while Mephistopheles, shouting an imperious, hither to me, disappears with Faust. The reader is allowed to suppose, and most readers did suppose, that the author meant it should be inferred that the devil had secured his victim, and that Faust, according to the legend, had paid the forfeit of his soul to the powers of hell. But Faust reappears in a new poem, the second part. He is there introduced sleeping, as if burying in torpor the lusts and crimes and sorrows of his past career. Pitying spirits are about him, and to heal his woes and promote his return to a better life. At the end of his hundred years of earthly life, Mephistopheles fails to secure the immortal part of Faust, which the angels appropriate and bear aloft. This member of the upper spheres we rescue from the devil, for whoso strives and perseveres may be redeemed from evil. The last two lines may be supposed to contain the author's justification of Mephistopheles' defeat and Faust's salvation. Though a man surrender himself to evil, if there is that in him which evil cannot satisfy, an impulse by which he outgrows the gratifications of vice, extends his horizon, and lifts his desires, pursues an onward course until he learns to place his aims outside of himself, and to seek satisfaction in works of public utility, he is beyond the power of Satan. He may be redeemed from evil." One could wish, indeed, that more decisive marks of moral development had been exhibited in the latter stages of Faust's career. But here comes a Christian doctrine of grace, which Goethe applies to the problem of man's destiny. Faust is represented as saved by no merit of his own, but by the interest which heaven has in every soul in which there is the possibility of a heavenly life. And so the newborn ascending spirit is committed by the Mater Gloriosa to the tutelage of Gretchen, Margaret, una now purified from all the stains of her earthly life, to whom is given the injunction, lift thyself up to higher spheres, when he divines he'll follow thee. And the mystic choir chants the epilogue which embodies the moral of the play, all that is perishing types the ideal, dream of our cherishing thus becomes real, superhumanly here it is done, the ever womanly draweth us on. End of section 23